0: I want to start by reading through our text that we have been reading through in regards to the book of Revelation. Um, here in Revelation chapter 21 verse 9 to Revelation chapter 22 verse 7. And here we read. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away into the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a high and great wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. The names were written on them, which were the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on all of them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material, of the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like crystal clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, and the fourth emerald, and the fifth sardonyx, and the sixth sardinus, and seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh yacinth, and the twelfth amethyst probably horribly pronouncing the names of those gemstones or jewels there and the 12 gates were 12 pearls each of them was a single pearl and the street was pure gold like transparent glass i saw no temple in it for the glory for the lord god and the almighty and the lamb are its temple and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime there will be no night there. Its, night, ga- its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent the things which must soon take place. I'm sorry, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Well, we surely have a great message to be told that can be found in this text. What we are going to do this morning is continue alone with the context that we have been following as we have been going through the book of Revelation and unpack the details of this bride, this city coming out from heaven, and what this would have meant to the Apostle John and those whom he wrote, specifically the seven churches of Asia Minor, as well as what that means for us today. We will allow the context of the writing to draw our place in the story rather than artificially inserting and assuming our place in it. Last week I detailed the properly understood and present new heavens and new earth, I explained that when God gives Israel the Mosaic law, he refers to it as, through apocalyptic language as creating heaven and earth. Following that line of thinking, the destruction of heaven and earth would be understood as the removal or destruction of the law of Moses, the old covenant. The giving of the new law, the new covenant, would be therefore creating a new heaven and a new earth. Ultimately, I exhorted us last week that those of us who live in this fulfilled reality and eat of the tree of life, are called to walk worthy of all that we have in Christ. All too often, when explaining the fulfilled view of the new heavens and new earth, the consummated here and now kingdom of God, we are met with rebuttals. I shared a few of those last week. I pointed out last week that failure to understand the full extent, the complete and fulfilled glory that we now have in Christ is to the detriment to the body of Christ. I love the way C.S. Lewis explained this in his Screwtape Letters. Evil triumphs in this manner, a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap on the altar of the future every real gift which is offered to them in the present. That being said, what I want to do this morning is provide you with a contextual understanding of the hope of Israel or more specifically, clarity in regards to what is apocalyptically described as the Bride of the Lamb, the New Jerusalem. One might properly say the Bible is God's love letter, however, not in the individualized, emotionally over-sensualized view that makes God more akin to our lover than our Lord. What we are reading in the story is the story of God faithfully courting his bride, all the while noting her disobedience to their betrothal covenant. Maybe something we would refer to as engagement today. Yet he pursues her still, and then he faithfully offers grace and forgiveness for her repentance. Those who would not repent, if she would not repent, it would be revealed she was not his bride in the first place, or, in the context of our Bible, that they were not of Israel. That natural lineage was a type, a shadow, an example, pointing to the greater reality that would be made known through Jesus Christ that Jew and Gentile both could come into the, to be the bride in and through Jesus Christ. This was revolutionary and requires a bit of a story. It is said that Jerusalem was first settled in around 3,500 B.C. In Genesis chapter 14, we read of the first mention of Jerusalem as Abraham met with Melchizedek, the king of Salem, again another early name for Jerusalem. Salem meant peace, the city of peace. Peace. We can look back to ancient Egyptian writings going back to 1800 BC and learn that Jerusalem was referred to as Releusalem in Egyptian writings. In the book of Joshua, we read how Joshua kills Adonai Zedek, the Canaanite king, specifically the Jezebite king. Jerusalem at one point was known as Jebus. Joshua did not capture the city, however. It would later take King David in 1000 BC, which we read about in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, to conquer and take the city. Solomon would later build the temple there at the threshing floor, the highest point in the city, which we read about in 1 Kings 6-9. through God said to Solomon, Concerning this house which you are building, if you walk in my statutes and exercise my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Later, after Solomon finished his work and prayed and offered a blessing over his work to God, sure enough, God replied, I have heard your prayer and your supplications, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. All throughout the quote-unquote books of wisdom, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, we are given the picture of Israel, symbolized by Jerusalem and the temple, which have become the apple of God's eye. I will include most of those verses in your review sheets. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we begin to read of the split kingdom. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, rules wickedly and therefore invites rebellion. And we know that the ten tribes of the north choose Jeroboam as their king, eventually setting up a system of false worship, being given over to their idolatry, and being marked by the prophets of those times as a woman who had been betrothed to God, yet had fornicated. I told you before, this is God's love story. What comes to be known as the houses within Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, also come to be seen as sisters who are betrothed to God. You might think of Jacob and how he loved both sisters as wives. So the younger sister, Israel, the house of Israel, does wickedly and is cast out of the sight of her soon-to-be-wedded husband. We read about the remnant, house of Judah, which would have come to be represented by Jerusalem in 2 Kings chapter 19 as well as chapter 21. Unfortunately, all too soon we read about the fornication, wickedness, and idolatry done by the second wife, the house of Judah, the remnant. The Lord remarks, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight. And they have provoked me to anger since I led them out of Egypt. 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 12 through 15. We then read about the siege that would have been historically and which is prophetically referred to as coming of the Lord in 2 Kings chapter 25. This was a punishment of God. The northern house of Israel, Samaria, had been punished by the Assyrians, and now the southern house of Judah would experience the wrath of God at the hands of the Babylonians, ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. It is very important to understand how the Hebraic marriage covenant went, and in doing so, we can understand the story of salvation all the more. I must quickly say, Pastor Alan Bondar, a popular Bible teacher and pastor of Lyft Church in Fort Myers, Florida, has a sermon called Holy Hate Batman, God Hates Divorce. Yes, indeed, a rather strange name for the sermon, but the details he shows in explaining the betrothal and marriage covenant from a Hebraic perspective is amazing. We have engagement, which usually is a time when a man will approach the family of his hopeful bride and the woman herself, and he explains his intention and then prayerfully and properly courts her with love and faithfulness. They had betrothal, which was a time similar to engagement where the man would begin to prepare his home for his bride, This time was a waiting period for the woman and the man to express their faithfulness to each other. Sexual relations were forbidden during this time between the soon-to-be-wed couple and of course sexual relations with anyone else was tantamount to fornication and adultery and by the law, the woman would be stoned to death. Allow that to form a picture of what God is essentially expressing and doing with the house of Israel and more specifically with the house of Judah. Please listen to the prophets speak about these details. I will, however, provide much more detail in verses to further substantiate this. Ezekiel prophesied in times between Assyrian captivity of the north and the soon-coming judgment of the south. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we read about this marriage God had with Israel. He says, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was a time of love. I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yes, I swore unto thee and entered into covenant with thee. And the Lord God, and thou became, said the Lord God, and thou became mine. This is God speaking here to the remnant Judah. And he's saying that he spread his skirt over them, which is again a marriage term found in the Old Testament. And he has made a covenant. Here specifically would be the betrothal covenant with Judah. The language of spreading his skirt, again, is consummating the marriage. Should probably be interpreted as Moses setting up the tabernacle and the glory of God filling it, Exodus chapter 40, verses 17 through 38, representing God dwelling with his people and cohabitating with his bride. Let's take a look again at Hebrews, um, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 60 through 30. Later in the chapter, it says, Nevertheless, I will remember my, and I would say betrothal covenant here, in using Tim Martin's advice, I will remember my betrothal covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting marriage covenant with you in the future. Then you will remember your old covenant ways and be ashamed when they were betrothed to God, when you receive your older and your younger sisters in the last days. Again, God came to restore the nations of Israel in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus very clearly reveals this. For I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my betrothal covenant with you, and I will establish my marriage covenant with you. Then, at the consummation of the age, the wedding supper of the Lamb, we're reading about in Revelation chapter 21 through 22, you shall know that I am the Lord and that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame under the old covenant. When I provide with you provide you with atonement in the last days of the old covenant or the betrothal covenant for all that you have done, says the Lord. Jeremiah as well as Isaiah Also prophesied during this time, Jeremiah's entire writing is detailing and lamenting the 70-year captivity of the southern tribes, the house of Judah, and what they would suffer under the Babylonians. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we read of how God speaks of the beginning of the betrothal and seemingly laments that his bride has went astray and therefore she will face humiliation. Yet as we move further into the prophet's writing, we come to God's promise, the time of a new covenant. When he will faithfully take his betrothed wife into marriage covenant. Here in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, as well as repeated in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, we read, <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the betrothal covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them from their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my betrothal covenant, which they broke, though I was a faithful betrothed husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the marriage covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days of the old covenant, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their heart, thus consummating the marriage covenant through intimacy, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, husband and wife, forever." Again, that is using the thoughts of Tim Martin imposed on the text. However, you see how it very faithfully follows the concept of what you're reading about and the context of what you're reading about in the Old Testament. God would show himself faithful in his commitment toward his wife. He would forgive her of her transgressions during the betrothal. He would renew his commitments through an eternal marriage covenant, removing the shame from her. This would be done by fulfilling his law and luring his people back. While the picture is of God marrying his bride, the details that would soon come are, re, result in God's truth and they would hear the call to be the faith and chaste bride. How and when God would do this would come to be known prophetically as the hope of Israel. Seventy years after the judgment of the remnant at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C., Cyrus the Persian allows the Jews to return. Studying through the prophets leads us to see how important this was and how praiseworthy This would have been to the Jews at that time. While the temple work began under Ezra and Nehemiah, the former glory was not returned, leaving God's remnant people to wonder, when will he remove the shame? (laughs) Seemingly better days for God's remnant bride turn ugly rather fast, as it is revealed that his bride is still yet longing for fornication and not fully committed to him, even after the 70 years in Babylon. This would be revealed through the time of silence, or dare we call it a famine for God's word, for the judgments and promises spoken by Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi were followed by 400 years of what seemed to be God's absence. There is a history of Jerusalem that takes place during that time, much of which would come to be known as the Hellenistic period, leading into the Hasmonean and Herodian periods. All of that could be summed up by saying the quote-unquote bride was led further into idolatry, fornication, and wickedness. It would be in the midst of this time when the kings and rulers tried so hard to restore Jerusalem to her former glory. During this time leading into the first century, that which was spoken of through the prophets, the time of the Messiah, began to find fruition with the child of peace that was born. This child would reveal the intent and will of God, as well as provide the consolation of Israel and redemption to Jerusalem, wooing the unfaithful bride back. This is the time of the marriage covenant. It is revealed through this prophesied child who was God in the flesh, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, that the purpose of the law and the prophets was to. Sorry about that. The purpose of the law and the prophets was to bring about the bride's repentance. This is explained by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 23 through 24, we read. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression having been ordained through the angels of the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promises was made. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The struggle for the bride to fulfill the law in righteousness led to her seemingly making up her own laws, which was revealed through the religious leaders of the first century. This would be the struggle between the at that time present Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, the sanctified bride that would be revealed in the end of the age. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 23 through 21, this is explained. And let's turn there quickly and look at the text. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me. You who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman according to the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren women, who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But at, as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bond woman and her son, For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Simply put, the time of the Messiah was revealing that the natural bride, Old Covenant Israel, was under judgment. However, through the Spirit, those of Israel, by the Spirit, those who wanted to worship God in spirit and in truth, even some of the Gentiles would come to share in this righteous bride, the marriage covenant, the new covenant that would be made through Jesus Christ. This would all come to be revealed in and through Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we read of Jesus speaking, sometimes in parables, about the soon-coming wedding banquet. One Bible commentator noted, The marriage supper is a metaphor for the final repudiation of the harlot and the introduction of the bride. This is the divorce and remarriage of the Lord in the covenant meal or marriage supper which seals the new relationship. It is accomplished when the bridegroom overthrows the unfaithful wife and punishes her lovers the kings of the land with whom she had committed adultery. Surely you can tell how that would have been both a glorious time for some and an extremely sad time for others. The harlot would be surely dismayed, as the book of Revelation essentially could be understood as the divorce certificate to Old Covenant Israel. It was through the revelation of Jesus Christ that the mystery of God, which was preached through the prophets, was being made known. Through Jesus Christ, it would be revealed how and when God would renew his bride and remove her shame. That's the details of what we are reading here in our text this morning. Then I saw a new, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 9. Listen again here to the details of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Going into verse 10. And he carried me away into the great mountain and showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of clear, crystal-clear jasper. While many wait for this new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, to be revealed from heaven in the future, I want to share with you some closing details why that is not a plausible interpretation. As Dr. Don K. Preston remarks, the wedding has to occur in Jesus' contemporary generation. There is no other event than the A.D. 70 coming of Christ against Jerusalem that honors the temporary time constraints and the requirements of the wedding prophecies. He goes on to note the wedding prophecies demanded, one, the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, two, the fulfillment at the time of judgment of Judah, according to Isaiah chapter 62, as well as Isaiah chapter 65, when Revelation depicts the wedding of, the, of Christ at the time of judgment of the city where the Lord was slain, and in the promise of his coming alludes directly to Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 through 11. This amounts to proof positive that Babylon was none other than Old Covenant Jerusalem, the unfaithful bride. I love the boldness of Don's words when he says, any interpretation that places the wedding of Christ outside of the first century is a denial of Jesus' words. Jerome, one of the significant early church fathers, one of the most significant early church fathers, writes, Nothing is greater than Christ and the church. Even all that is said of Adam and Eve is interpreted with reference to Christ and the church. Noted Bible teacher R.C. Sproul builds on that thought and notes, Every marriage in Scripture points us to Jesus and his relationship to his people. The good ones give us hints as to the glory of Christ's intimacy with his church, and the bad ones show us how unlike the worst husband Jesus really is. Our Creator has always sought to take his people as a bride, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, as well as Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And in Christ, this marriage is finally consummated. That's the story of the child of peace that Meredith blessed us in song with earlier this morning. As we near Christmas celebration of the birth of the glorious child, this child of peace, let us, pass another, let us not pass another Christmas without really seeing the significance of his birth. Old Jerusalem, which was the first century Jerusalem, present-day Jerusalem, God's betrothed bride, could not remain faithful, nor walk worthy of displaying the righteousness that was demanded by her husband, nor did she walk under his covering to avoid further shame. In doing so, she became an example to those who would seek idols and fail to find righteousness wherein God has offered it. Those who come to know the way, the truth, and the life through Jesus Christ have the opportunity to walk in the renewed covenant, the new covenant of God's righteous bride, who has been sanctified, washed, and renewed by the water of the word and the grace and love of Christ. Today we are children of that blessed union. God married his bride and continues to love her and produce children of God through her. In fulfillment of promises made in Ezekiel chapter 48, for example, the marriage of the faithful husband, God, and his renewed bride offers the opportunity today for people to find truth in Christ and have access to the tree of life, the water of life, and the necessary healing of the nations. All due to the child of peace. You know, walking worthy today, not wanting to be akin to the unfaithful bride represented by by apostate Jerusalem, we can look to Christ. When we look to him and thank him for his love, we should clearly know his response is to bring that love to bear on all of humanity. That pretty much sums up the Bible. For the next couple weeks, we will endeavor to finish the book of Revelation while grasping some details to encourage us to walk worthy in the new covenant. Next week, we will talk about what exactly we, as the children of this glorious union that finalizes the biblical story, are called to invite others into. What does it mean to have access to the tree of life and the river of the water, water of life? What does it mean to have access to the healing of the nations? And how can we walk worthy of that? We will finish our reading of Revelation with a time of interaction, discussion, and challenge on January 10th. May this season continue to produce hope, peace, and joy, and love in your life, and all the more as we near the celebration of his birth.